Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday morning, the 17th of July. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reed on LMFM. The headline in the Sunday Independent yesterday was Sex Abuse Victims Urge Louth County Councillors to Strip Award from Christian Brothers' former leader. Maeve Sheen reported that Louth County Councillors will be asked today to strip Brother Edmund Garvey of the Freedom of Drogheda Award bestowed on him in 19. 19- Ninety-seven, because of a legal strategy put in place by Garvey that makes it impossible or next to impossible for people who as children were sexually abused by Christian brothers to seek redress now. The strategy, which has been widely condemned, is cold and calculated, designed to protect the bank balance of the Christian Brothers order. The motion councillors will vote on today will condemn this legal strategy and will result in the council writing to the order asking them to drop its approach so as victims of child sexual abuse by Christian Brothers can get justice. That's if the motion is adopted. This motion is being tabled by independent councillor Maeve Yore. It's not the first time that councillor Yore has tabled a motion of this sort, but a previous attempt to unify the council in solidarity with victims of child sexual abuse by Christian brothers has been met with concern from council officials. The chief executive, Joan Martin, had pulled a motion from the council's agenda which prevented the councillors from even discussing the proposal. The reason Joan Martin pulled the motion, we are told, was based on legal advice, which said that the motion was defamatory and that the council could be sued for tarring someone's good name. That Louth County Council supports all victims of child sexual abuse and condemns the current litigation strategy chosen by the Christian Brother Order as illustrated on RT Primetime the 7th of February 2023. Furthermore, that this council writes to the Christian Brother leadership team condemning this litigation strategy and this council calls upon our members in the borough district of Drogheda to rescind the freedom of Drogheda bestowed on the then leader of the Christian Brothers who presided over the order's instigation of this strategy. Now that's Independent Councillor Maeve Yore reading that strategy out on this programme back in May. It's uh, defamatory according to the legal advice 
that has been given to Louth County Council, which, if correct, would mean that as a radio station, as a publisher, we've now defamed somebody. Uh, and it's not the first time uh, that you've heard maybe your uh, read out uh, that motion, uh, which the council believes to be defamatory. But that position is being questioned. Let's speak to local solicitor James McGuill, who's based in Dundalk. And a very good morning to you, James, and thanks for joining us on the, the programme this morning. You don't believe that that in itself was a defamatory statement? No, I don't. I mean, I think that, that there are a number of, of things you can say about it. First and foremost, uh, the Christian Brothers and Edmund Garvey do not deny having contrived this um, strategy. They've been criticised in the courts as recently as last month for their obstructive policy, which is calculated simply to deny justice to people who've been abused at the hands of the Christian Brothers and to their knowledge. So firstly, they're not saying it's not true. Secondly, Councillor Yor would say it is true. Thirdly, uh, there's qualified privilege for local authorities to have reasonable debates on matters of public interest. And then there's also a a, a defence of fair and reasonable publication. So on any number of grounds, this is a legitimate discussion and it shouldn't be stymied. And there's no legal reason why it should be stymied. And as you opened the article by saying that Maeve Sheehan's piece yesterday, you know, the independent newspapers have a lot of experience about the law of defamation. They didn't see a problem publishing this. So why Louth County Council should stymie a motion, I don't know. Right. Um, that's your legal advice, uh, and uh, I, I take it uh, that means we don't need to be concerned that somebody's going to sue us this morning because we've played out that statement. But so concerned is Loud County Council that they wouldn't uh, allow the motion to be discussed. Um, there's a, a question too, is there not, about how that decision came about. Um and we'll talk about the decision that was made by the executive rather than the members of the council in a, a moment. Uh, but if you believe that there was nothing defamatory about Maeve Yor's motion, and if you've been advising Maeve Yor, why didn't you write to Louth County Council to tell them that you believe that they were wrong in how they were looking at the wording of this motion? Well, Councillor Yor was so concerned that she was being blocked raising this topic she did ask us to write, and we did write, and we pointed out uh, that we didn't believe that the motion was defamatory. Uh, we offered to remove some words from the motion um, so that it would give them some comfort. Um, but we also indicated that if they wouldn't put the motion on the CLAR, we would seek the protection of the High Court, which we were fully intent on doing. Right. Um, were you responded to? We wrote, um, I think, on three occasions, and we were responded to on each of the three occasions. Um, So the first exchange of correspondence was on the 10th of May. Again, we wrote on the 16th of May and on the 16th of June, and we were responded to effectively on the same day each time. Right. It was a delay in the last one, which is the 20th of June, we responded, we got acknowledgements on the 16th. So, you know, the the, the Mm. correspondence is there. Okay. Uh, You you wrote three times to the council. The council received each of the letters and they responded to each of the letters. Uh, That seems absolutely incredible, uh, in fact, uh, because uh, it it appears that Louth County Council don't have any record of your correspondence. Uh, At least, uh, I say that based on a Freedom of Information request that went from here to the council in relation to Maeve Yor's motion. Uh, And this um, 
is quite shocking, uh, as I say, because uh, the response we received was that there were three letters uh, sent uh, to a firm of solicitors, not yours, uh, another uh, group of solicitors, and there were two responses from those solicitors. Uh, but there was no record of any correspondence with James McGuill solicitors. Uh, that can't be if they have those records on file. Um are you sure? <laughs> Just to double check uh, what I, I'm saying. You did send those letters to Louth County Council and you've resp- re- you have received responses from them, so they should have them uh, on record. The first letter was the 10th of May, responded to on the same day. The second letter was the 16th of May, responded to on the 17th of May. The third letter was on the 16th of June. We got two acknowledgements on the same day yeah. and the formal acknowledgement that they would place the motion on the CLAR on the 20th of June. Okay. And Councillor Yor has instructed me to make those letters available to you. Okay, can I ask you as a solicitor how all of this balances in in your mind what you know, uh, which is that you sent these letters and you were responded and what I'm telling you that there's no record of them, that they weren't discovered in a a freedom of information trawl? (laughs) They should have been provided to you. By law? That's what the purpose of the Freedom of Information Acts are, you know. Yeah. It's, it's a, well, they should have been discovered. Uh, they can, the, the Freedom of Information officer will decide then whether to release them or not, but they have to be discovered, don't they? What they do is they must acknowledge that they exist. Yes. There are grounds when particular <clears throat> communications would not be provided to you, mm. but they have to assert the reason why they're not providing it. Sometimes it's because there's private information concerning a third yeah. party. Sometimes it's because the communications are legally professionally privileged. But my correspondence to the local authority is not giving them legal advice. It's telling them what advice I'm giving Councillor Yor. Uh, And even if it was, it wasn't discovered. Uh, I mean, is it an offence under the law not to discover documents, not to show them to the Freedom of Information Officer when a request comes into an authority or an organisation under Freedom of Information? You have to be careful with the word offence because that... <clears throat> connotes an intention and failure to do something can equally be an innocent oversight so mm. we don't know right. but certainly the system has failed Okay uh, and uh, I'm, just, I'm sorry we uh, are going off uh, the point here to some degree but it is a very interesting point in, in itself in that this was a freedom of information request that was denied and appealed on the basis that it, it appeared it hadn't discovered enough information uh, and when that was put to the County Council, they came back uh, with some extra documentation, but not your correspondence. Uh, there's a, a very serious question that perhaps uh, we'll get answered in time. Uh, but as you say, it could have been a mistake, but there's something wrong there. The system has failed. Uh, what about the legal strategy that the Christian brothers have uh, adopted in relation to this? As you said, it was uh, criticised in the High Court last month, the month before that, uh, the former Chief Justice, Frank Clark, uh, who is now the President of the Law Reform Commission, has criticised it and asked for the law to be changed to prevent this from happening again. What are your thoughts on it? Well, just in preparing for today's discussion, I just refreshed uh, my mind on some of the other activities of the Christian Brothers. And back in 2002, when the Commission to Inquire into Child Abuse was established, the Brothers tried to stop the Commission inquiring into the wrongful acts by Christian Brothers on the basis that it would cause distress and upset to elderly and retired brothers who had not been involved. Now, the irony about that is that they themselves are now, with their new strategy, where they're insisting on each and every brother being sued, are causing immense distress to elderly and infirm brothers who are absolutely 
innocent of everything, never were in positions of responsibility, never did a, a single badly motivated act in their lives. And they're not being served with court proceedings in nursing homes because the brothers are using that strategy to delay access to justice for the people that want to bring them to court. Mm. And the reasoning is quite simple because these are claims for personal injury damages. And if the plaintiff, the victim, dies, the case dies. So they're playing a strategy to say they can outlive the victims. And the way that they will um, prolong the litigation is to engage in this wholly unjustified um, strategy of insisting that every member of the order has to be sued. Now, bear in mind, when they want to bring a court case, they will nominate a plaintiff. And they will say, this person has the authority to speak on behalf of us all. And in the past, they were prepared to nominate defendants who had the authority to defend the proceedings on behalf of them all. So there's no good reason why that can't be reverted to at this stage. Other religious, congreg- other religious congregations do not put this um, obstacle in their path. If they maintain that an individual plaintiff was never a victim and is lying, they can defend that case with a nominee. But this is not a strategy about the validity of the cases. It's about blocking people bringing their cases mm-hmm. to the courts. Uh, I, um, I did suggest one reason for doing it at, at uh, the beginning of uh, the programme. I'm not sure if you'd agree that it's a, a good reason for doing it, uh, but perhaps the reason for doing it is to protect the bank balance of the order because it, it makes it impossible or next to impossible to sue the Christian Brothers. Absolutely. That is all it's about. I mean, this isn't about protecting reputations. It's not about ensuring that limited funds are available for charitable purposes. They have a massive asset bank, and they've established a special trust company to to keep that out of the reach of the courts, Um, or it has that effect at least. Mm. Um, No, I mean, the the, the reality is this is all about money. Uh, The Christian Brothers have been very much to the fore in making public apologies, but they never match those apologies with acts that actually assist uh, the people that they know uh, have been abused. And bear in mind, I mean, Mm. if you look at any Christian Brothers prosecution, you'll typically see that the crimes were committed in more than one location. Because typically what they were doing was they were moving known offenders from place to place to try and escape detection. Mm. In, In one series of cases that I was involved in, they were so horrified by the scale of the criminality of the particular brother that he was laicized and then put into a national school, to their knowledge, mm. with their support. Yeah. Um, bear in mind also that um, the, the, the Ryan report, the, the Commission to Inquire into Child Abuse, had to single out the Christian brothers for their obstructionism, mm. worse than anybody else. Mm. And I think that's the motivation for Councillor Yor's motion. Mm. I mean, why should we in County Louth uh, be honouring somebody who could have done more and didn't. And it is uh, legally sound, uh, the strategy that the brothers have uh, adopted, but some would say morally corrupt, uh, which is why this motion is being put to the councillors today, asking them to rescind the freedom of Drogheda on Brother Edmund Garvey, because Brother Edmund Garvey introduced uh, this strategy and uh, was uh, the person uh, who presided over the implementation of that strategy for a very long period 
period of time, which has thwarted, obstructed people from getting justice and led to further abuse, they say, on top of the original child sexual abuse that they suffered. Uh, But people, uh, the councillors, that is, uh, weren't able to vote on that motion because, as we heard earlier on, it was pulled from the agenda by the chief executive, Joan Martin. Uh, And uh, there is a a question about whether she had the authority, the legal authority, to have pulled the motion. Uh, It certainly was against the expressed wishes of the then Cahirlick, Conor Keelan. Uh, And Conor Keelan spoke to me uh, about this on the 26th of June. Like, if a motion is put back on an agenda, on the submitted agenda, if it's proposed and saying that the motion should be heard. That's my opinion. It's up then to the councillors whether there's a vote taken otherwise and whether it's supported or not. But if the role of the chief executive is to advise and assist, did the chief executive not act outside of her role and step outside of her remit and undermine the reserved function that councillors have. I'm saying that could be said. You know what I mean? And um, I made the point previously about the role of local councillors, like mm. the roles we have. I mean, like you've heard to preserve functions, and um, and if we if we're not allowed to have <laughs> if we're not allowed to perform motions or questions because they're considered um, an annoyance, what role do we have going forward? If we continue to lose already, if we but it's a matter, it's a, road powers. Yeah. But it's a matter of law. Well, yes, that's the point. We either have powers or we don't. Right. That was uh, the career look back in uh, May. Conor Keelan speaking to me in June uh, because the chief executive. Uh, outvoted him um, and uh, against his wishes pulled the motion from the agenda. Uh, James McGuill, solicitor, uh, do you believe that under the Local Government Act the Chief Executive has the authority to act that way? Um, Well, I wouldn't be an expert in local government law, but on first principles, um, the councillors are elected to represent their constituents. Uh, I would have thought that this is an entirely legitimate topic for public discussion and for them to, frankly, remove the embarrassment that is endorsing Edmund Garvey as a freeman of Drogheda uh, in circumstances where the day after your interview with um, Conor Keelan, Councillor Keelan, uh, Edmund Garvey was reprimanded in the High Court and directed, or in the Circuit Court, and directed um, to, or the High Court rather, directed to hand over the names. I mean, it's a day and daily obstructionism. We're not talking about something that happened 20 years ago. This happened in June of this year. Okay, well, the councillors will get to debate uh, a motion uh, this morning uh, and uh, the victims of child sexual abuse are asking uh, the members of Loud County Council uh, to stand in solidarity with them and uh, to support their wishes, uh, which is uh, for this motion to be uh, adopted. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme today in advance of that vote uh, and indeed uh, for your time with us uh, for that matter. That is James McGuill, who is a solicitor based in Dundalk. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now to last week's uh, decision of uh, the European Parliament uh, to adop, adopt uh, the Nature Restoration Law. Fine Gael MEP Colin Markey joins us. And a very good morning to you. Thanks for joining us about this once again. And when it came down to the crunch, you voted in favour. Why so? 
Well, I voted in favour really because I suppose what was an offer on the table was to reject the thing completely or to vote for essentially what was uh, those proposals to vote for akin to the council position, which probably gave greater flexibilities and left the discretion at national level to, to address a number of the issues. I suppose, to be honest about it, when it comes to it, I wasn't prepared to, to, to completely vote down nature restoration law. We have to recognise that we have a biodiversity crisis and we need to deal with it. I suppose my frustration was it was, it was a bit of a Hobson's choice. I don't think that the nature restoration law was anything like as good as it could have been. And I suppose it was a case of voted there and altogether and have nothing or, or voted through and hope they get as close to the council position and maybe you hope that at national level and indeed at the trialogue between council, parliament and commission that there can be, they can be improved for that. And that was the agreed position of all the Fine Gael MEPs? That was the agreed position of all the Fine Gael MEPs, which was at odds with the EPP. Mm. Uh, in fact, you divide uh, the direction from the EPP, which is the group in the European Parliament that Fine Gael is a member of. Yeah, that's correct. We well, we look. We we've uh, we had a debate. We flagged it with them in advance that we had our concerns. I suppose in reality, when you look at a vote that went through Leinster House, that I think it only less than a dozen people who opposed the nature restoration law literally a day or two before it, it's very hard then for a five Fine Gael MEPs to not recognise that and recognise that people wanted nature restoration law. And I personally want nature restoration law. The question is why, how, how you make it as effective as possible. I think mm. that was the, the major concern. Yeah, it's kind of vague, isn't it? I mean, uh, uh, there isn't a law as such. Uh, it's a law in principle. Would that be a way of putting it? Uh, and now it's up to national governments, the Irish government, for example, to decide how it's going to implement the law here. It's That's exactly the point. It lacked a lot of definition. It lacked a lot of direction. And it's very much pushed it back to member states to develop a national plan as to how they're going to implement this. I suppose that does give states flexibility. That's a positive. But equally, it leaves a lot of grey areas, which which leaves a lot of ambiguity. And I think when you're trying to put law in place, it's it the less ambiguity in a lot of cases, the better, you know, because it's more clear. And I think that's that would be some of the concerns, I suppose. Mm. But at the same time, when you have a situation like nature restoration, it's very localised scenario. So the flexibilities that the council position gave in terms of national plans and discretion at national level. Uh, like even in an Irish context where we have so much peatlands, the fact that they, that a lot of their ambition in peatlands can be met by state lands, and if you like, it can be uh, that anything that has to be done at, at at individual level, at private level, would hopefully only have to be done uh, uh, by voluntary. I think that's that's significant. That there'll be no obligation uh, on government uh, to. Uh, force farmers to re-wet their lands. Uh, no obligation on, on farmers to re-wet their lands. Uh, and um, that is that is the intention. Uh, like I suppose, the ambition that's there could be achieved right up the way to 2050 on mm. state lands between Bordenamona lands and Quilter lands. So anything beyond that that would have to be done on private lands would, could be done in a voluntary capacity. But the Irish government could uh, ask or could force uh, farmers. Could, absolutely, and yeah. that's, where, mm. that's where the bit of ambiguity is, and that's where mm. the concern would be. You'd like to put things to be more crystal clear, right. black and white. And, 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 and would, you be concerned, would you be concerned about the Green Party in government? Uh, because uh, I think uh, the Green Party uh, would be quite happy to re-wet farmland, would it not? 
I think the nature of the debate and how the, the, the concerns that were raised, I think it's very much changed the, the perspective about this. I think people recognise if you want it to work, you need people to work with you. And that's, that's, it's more about empowering and encouraging uh, landowners rather than, than coming at them with a big stick and, and mm. forcing them to do something that you won't get to buy in. And I think that's one thing that we probably have got out of this. But the Green Party plans are for far more to be achieved than the uh, original um, uh, law that uh, has been amended over and over to take out this obligation on rewetting land, was it not? Well, there, there's national targets that are there already which would go mm. somewhat beyond what's proposed at European level, but it's not, it's not much further. And I think everyone recognises, and it's government-stated policy, that uh, anything that would be done on private land would be done in a voluntary capacity. I think the couple of things we have to get right about that is Number one, it has to be voluntary. Number two, you have to make sure that it doesn't negatively impact the neighbour. And number three, that, if you like, those who are involved are motivated, number one, but also compensated for any, any negative impact it would have on their lands. Like, ultimately, if you, give some, if you make it worth somebody's while to actually uh, do something that's positive, then they'll, they'll, they'll grab it, if you like. Whereas if you, if you come at them, we saw with the like of the water charges and things in the past, if you force something on people, it doesn't work. And mm. that's, that's, that's what we want to try and get away from in this situation. OK, and if you encourage somebody to do it uh, and if a farmer decides to re-wet their land, uh, how's that going to work if that forces um, their neighbour's land to be re-wetted to some degree because of a spillover? Well, this is the concern. I think that's... I have looked at some projects, let's say, in the country, in Offaly in particular, where this was managed in a way where there was deep drains between different farmlands and it seemed to work quite effectively. But the bottom line here is, and which is one of the concerns, we haven't the research done in this to the degree we need to in order to be able to implement this and the impact it's going to have on neighbours. Along with the fact that I suppose the, the concerns you might have about the greyness in some of the areas, uh, we don't have enough information yet. So the, the, there's a little bit of a headlong rush on this and that's one of the concerns that is there as well. So look, I think we have to see in terms of national plans take it by degrees. I think the ambition has been, if you like, uh, strung out a little bit further to allow for some of that uh, knowledge gap to be filled. So I think from where we were two months ago, it's come a long way. And I suppose that's partly why uh, I was happy to, to vote for it this week, reluctantly enough. But, how, but I, like the bottom line is we do need more research and we do need to, to put the people, the actors, at the centre of the conversation because they're the ones that will have to make the decisions and they're the ones that will suffer the consequences if we get it wrong. Right. Is it going to restore biodiversity on a scale that's necessary? I don't know, is the perfectly honest answer. What I would like to see yet again is if we, if we put people who can make the difference at the centre of the equation, then it will. But uh, as of yet, we haven't achieved to do that. The other thing I think about this is we're really having two conversations in one. Like the re-wetting piece has become uh, water table management, as I think it should be called, because it's ultimately raising and lowering a water table. Mm. It doesn't have to be about completely re-wetting. But that's one element of the debate. There's a whole nature restoration piece about biodiversity, which is in a lot of ways completely different. And the two debates have got caught up in each other. If I, if, if I knew way, I'd have split the two out into two separate pieces of legislation because what we have to do in terms of pollinators and uh, different indicators around nature and, and improving them is a completely different uh, ambition to what the, the, the peatlands piece is. And I think one is getting lost in the other. Mm. 
In, in what sense? I mean, you've lost me. I, I thought the idea of re-wetting peatlands was that it, it uh, would give you the environment uh, to see a return of biodiversity. Well, we need biodiversity in all our land. We need it on, on like our mm. farmlands and we need it on our hills and uh, the, even the, the, the areas of ground that's managed by... The, but, you, the, but, but you'd have more if you re-wetted land, wouldn't you, whether that's uh, state land or, or, or farmland, uh, because you create, only, the, you create the conditions for nature to come back. Yeah, but that's only in one element of, of uh, the environment, in one part, primarily in pretty much in one part of the country. But this is all to do with, let's say, oceans and seas and mm. urban areas and areas managed by local authorities and public grounds and golf courses. There's, it covers a whole spectrum. And that all, that, how it impacts and how that's effectively delivered is, has been completely lost in the debate around re-wetting. And I think there's an enormous amount of... Like, if you look at the, the Citizens' Assembly on Biodiversity... It covered a whole range of areas which this legislation is covering, but it has been not, if you like, that's the bit that you'd be very reluctant to vote against, is the idea that we do need to improve our pollination. We do, do, we, we do need to see that the loss of various species come back to some degree, or to a big degree. Mm. And that part, that's, that's the bigger part of all this legislation. Mm. But- and... But I mean, there's been a, a, a massive uh, lobby against the legislation from uh, the agriculture sector uh, and farmers are just completely opposed to the idea of re-wetting or being forced to re-wet land. That's my point. I think the two mm. pieces of legislation should have been separate. The re-wetting piece should have been dealt with mm. as a standalone piece of legislation because there's the, I think what the public wanted in the public... Uh, if you like, a push for biodiversity and nature restoration was about the broader law, which is legitimate and everybody mm. wants that. And then the piece around re-wetting was the piece that was causing a lot of controversy. And that, I think, is, is the bit that, if you like, was a blind spot in this whole debate. There is also impacts, let's say, for upland sheep farming and there's impacts for other, other elements mm. of agriculture. But they really never got a proper discussion Okay. It was caught up in the peatland piece. And I think, to be honest about the whole thing, I find that a, the whole position from the Commission has been poor in relation to this. There's been lack of a proper debate. It's been very polarised, one side set against the other. And the real issues were never really dealt with because it was, it was all sold in kind of labels and brands of nature restoration. And the content of it and how you deliver on that and how you actually effectively get a result was completely lost. And the Commission did nothing to help to have a meaningful and substantial debate about any of that. OK. Uh, as you say, uh, it's to do with more than land. Uh, what about the oceans? What will this, la- what will this law mean uh, for offshore wind farms? The situation as regards offshore wind farms is that the designations of... of nature restoration areas or uh, sensitive areas will not impact on the, uh, the building of wind farms. That's some of the changes we got uh, built into it. And in fact, there's a recognition that, let's say, there's a coral effect of wind farms on, under the ocean, under the sea floor, if you like, or under the, the, the level of the water that uh, allows, let's say, greater biodiversity under underneath the, in, in the water, if you like. And that's, as a result, uh, that actually... There's an ambition to, if you like, overlay the wind farms with the with the nature restoration areas. So it's actually a lot of work was done in relation to, to that end of it to try and make the two work together. Okay, it's over to 
the government, uh, as far as we're concerned, over to all of the governments in Europe. What happens next in terms of a timeline? Well, it's not that far yet because it ultimately has to go to trialogues in Europe. Like That was only a parliament position. That parliament position, a council position and a commission position, they all have to be thrashed out into one. Mm. And at that stage, it'll come back to national governments where essentially it'll be about creating a plan to roll this out over a number of years and that plan will be subject to review then every every couple of years. So that's... Mm that's the way it'll play out from there. And I suppose that's where the, the commitments are coming at national level to take account of all the concerns that were raised. All right. How will it fit in politically? Uh, will uh, this be an issue going into the local and European elections? I think it probably will. And I think the one thing that I'd like to see is to make sure we don't get into a situation where it gets overly politicised and misinformation becomes the centre of the debate because that's a little bit of the problem we've had for the last couple of months. But I think certainly... The, the 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 peatlands piece is going to be very controversial and continue to be controversial, and I think the the overall a dynamic of where the the broader public want a, to see biodiversity improve, mm. and the frustrating thing from my perspective as someone who is a farmer, I think every every farmer I talk to is uh, is of that mind too, but okay. somehow the debate becomes polarised one against the other because just because. People have different perspectives of how that can be achieved. And just, just I, so, sorry, just to explain to me, if you would, uh, and forgive me uh, for uh, not being as up to speed as perhaps I should be, but how will the peatland issue continue to be contentious and contentious still at the stage of going into local and European elections? Uh, are you concerned that farmers are going to be forced to re-wet land? No, I just think that people will present it to be differently than what it is. And also, I think we would need to have, if you like, the government position. Like, if you consider where we are, we still have to go into dialogues, and then there still has to be a national plan developed. Who who will present it differently than it is? Well, the reality is that the plans won't necessarily be in place by the time we get to local and European elections. Right. You believe that you're going to be fighting with the Green Party on this, is it? I don't think I'm going to be fighting with the Green Party. I think I'm going to be fighting from a situation of people's presumptions of what's going to be in a plan and them not are knowing they gr- what's going Are to they be. Green Party assumptions? Well, there could be assumptions on all sides. OK, so but, we, but we, are we you concerned about the Minister for the Environment's assumptions uh, because uh, there is quite the possibility that Eamon Ryan will want farmers to re-wet their land? I'm concerned that there'll be a kind of a populist narrative in rural Ireland that will say this is this is the end of rural Ireland, which is, will be a misrepresentation on one side. And then uh, apart from, let's say, my experience of people that are close to the environmental debate and know the, the substance of, like the, envir- the actual, let's say, professional environmentalists are rather pragmatic about some of this. It's, the, it's people who are looking at it from a distance and they take a take a kind of a populist view on it. And I think you could have populism in rural Ireland saying that you know, this is the end of rural Ireland and you could have populism from a from a, a environmental perspective of saying that rural Ireland is opposed to this. And those two populist debates the, the, the substance of everything could get lost in the middle of that, and that's my concern. And the fact that we won't have necessarily a, a national plans in place before the European and local elections will fuel that debate further. So I think what we need 
is to make sure that misinformation doesn't take over when it comes to that time. Or, or that the plans are as advanced as possible, I suppose, before people go to vote uh, so that uh, some of that confusion can be cleared up. Absolutely. Interesting, trying times ahead by the sounds of it. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. That's uh, Fine Gael MEP, Colin Markey. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. We're going to be talking about uh, the Obelisk uh, Bridge closing in Drogheda in the second hour of the programme. We'll have uh, the three TDs who are based in Drogheda join us uh, because this really is going to cause mayhem in the town. That's the way it appears at the moment uh, because you are closing off one of uh, the main arteries uh, into Drogheda for 10 months. Um, as I say, we'll be talking about that later in the programme, but already we're getting calls about it. Helen heard me mention the impending closure of the bridge and she rang in to say she's dreading it because the traffic is going to be manic all over the town when this happens. Is there no other way the renovations can be done without having to close it completely? Jimmy rang us about it too, saying the upcoming closure of the obelisk is a nightmare. Traffic is already carnage in the town at peak times, but now it'll be even worse when the bridge closes. They say the closure will only last for 10 months, but let's face it, when they do any of these projects, they tend to overrun. They never run on time, so we're facing into many months of traffic congestion congestion in the town and the surrounding areas. I think so as things stand, Jimmy, and it's a couple of weeks obviously before it closes if uh, something could be done to mitigate that. I don't know. We'll be talking about it later but uh, 10 months is a long time if it runs over that. I did hear some people talk about it for a year but uh, 10 months is long enough anyway. Uh, But Maybe people want to uh, join in that conversation by calling us now. 0419832000 is our telephone number. You can text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. A Navin listener texting us uh, this morning saying, Michael, the person who texted in at the end of the programme on Friday trying to defend the clergy... Uh, uh, and all the good that they did. Uh, this caller wants to point out that a, a lot of uh, the education was dished out through cruelty, bearable physical and sexual uh, assaults. Ask anyone who attended school as recently as the 60s and 70s. Most will verify this. I'm a Christian person. As there's nothing great about being Catholic, ask the people of Tume and Artane and lots more what they think. Why should we fund an organisation like the Catholic one, uh, says, I think it's Michael uh, in Navin. Thank you indeed uh, for your text. Uh, somebody else asking, uh, are the councillors coming on today, Michael? That's Tom. Uh, no, well, the councillors uh, will be in the chamber now in the next uh, five minutes, uh, and at some stage they'll be debating that motion, Tom. Um, so uh, we may hear from them tomorrow. Uh, um, we'll have the outcome of the motion, uh, but uh, I suppose uh, there was... I imagine something of interest in our opening piece for members of Louth County Council going into that meeting today. Uh, Gillian, thank you very much uh, for your WhatsApp message as well. Uh, Gillian says, thanks for covering this issue on your show. My husband's Christian brother perpetrator was convicted and jailed. Yet there's no end in sight for our trauma and the family's trauma. Years and years of appalling, unchristian treatment, and it's quite upsetting. Victims have to explain the significance of this to our public reps in Drada and in Louth. Thank you indeed, Gillian. As I say, our phone number is 0419832000. Text or WhatsApp 0861800658. Email michael at lmfm.ie. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Well, I'm sure uh, you're not the only one who was shocked over the weekend uh, to hear that Louth GAA has been instructed by Crow Park not to proceed uh, with uh, the plans it has for a new stadium in Dundalk. Let's speak uh, to Colm Corrigan, LMFM's sports editor. Good morning to you, Colm. Thanks for joining. Talk about timing uh, with the sod turning due to take place today the commencement ceremony uh, I take it has been cancelled uh, not much of a, a surprise given the diktat if you like from Crow Park uh, to reassess uh, the plans for the stadium Yes, good morning, uh, Michael. Yes, it was uh, the news, I suppose, we were expecting last night that this uh, commencement uh, ceremony, which was due to take place in around an hour's time, uh, was indeed uh, put off uh, last night by the Louth County Board. There was a management meeting, I understand, of the County Board last night, after which then it was uh, announced and uh, through social media that the uh, launch and this uh, ceremony today wouldn't be taking place. It has been put back, they say, until early August. That might be a little bit optimistic, given now that Crow Park, this situation now and this uh, project is in the hands of Crow Park, they were going to be examining it as the statement from the Arcorder meeting on Saturday suggested. Uh, they have uh, asked Loud and told Loud that the project is now uh, being put on hold uh, pending a, a reassessment and that uh, presumably will be uh, will involve um, uh, uh, correspondence with Crow Park between the County Board and Crow Park. Uh, what exactly uh, Crow Park are not happy about, I would, I would presume it's probably around uh, mostly the financial end of it and whether Loud you know, can satisfy Crow Park that they're going to have the money in place to complete this project. We mentioned in the last time we was on with you, Michael, it was brought up at the uh, June meeting of the County Board that they were looking at a shortfall in the region of €7 million. Euro. Loud were confident that it would come in around that. That would be the shortfall and they were hoping, obviously, from uh, uh, support then at that stage from Crow Park and Leinster Council. But uh, Crow Park, obviously not happy uh, with, with how things stand at the moment. Um, um, the, you know, they're, they're obviously looking at the situation and maybe uh, going back to what happened, as has been mentioned previously, with the likes of Parky Kiev when there was a massive overrun with that particular project and Crow Park want to make sure everything is uh, done right here with this Loud project so that uh, uh, meant uh, at the meeting at the weekend well they decided you know, to, to hold back on this and uh, instruct Loud indeed not to go ahead so that ceremony the commencement ceremony not going ahead uh, today so we just have to wait and see mm. now Michael where, this, where it goes from here Sure yeah. And, and what happens over the next uh, number of weeks uh, Loud, from their point of view they are very anxious obviously to, mm. to get this up and running uh, Peter Fitzpatrick uh, has you know uh, stressed in, in every county board meeting that Loud need the, the stadium uh, you know it's full steam ahead um, you know they've got so much money uh, put aside and they're confident of, of raising so much themselves um, but um, Crow Park are obviously not satisfied uh, so far and yeah. uh, that's that's where the decision well, the it certainly came. is a, a spanner in the works I, I suppose the question is how big is that spanner or how do you read it, Colm? Uh, do you think that Laos should be concerned at this stage given that the ambition is not just to build the stadium but have it open and start fixing ties for September of next year? Yeah, well, that was the date that Peter Fitzpatrick has been putting all along on, on the stadium. They, they, they plan to be uh, hosting the county final in the uh, stadium in September 2024. Uh, that is now looking pretty am, am ambitious. Um, and I know that they had plans to bring in parts of the, the, uh, the concrete, the stand, uh, I think in September. I think that was the last uh, update they gave. That, so we'll have to wait and see. Obviously, those kind of plans now are, will, will likely have to be put on hold, uh, given that you know the, 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 the whole stadium and, and work on the stadium now has been just been put back 
back. So then mm. um, early August is, is what they're, they're, they've said that the commencement ceremony has been put back to. But I, I can't really see any reassessment by Crow Park how long that is going to take. I'd imagine it's going to be more than a few weeks. I think they'll be going through everything uh, very carefully. Um, I, I'm just looking at notes from the last county board meeting. Somebody did ask at the at the July meeting, you know, what was what is preventing the green light from Crow Park? Because Crow Park, even though you know they have in theory been supportive of this and you know they've been encouraging loud all along, but they hadn't actually given the green light. Peter Fitzpatrick did say it was a, a multitude of things. Uh, so whether it goes beyond, beyond finance, we're not we're not too sure. We haven't the uh, the, the nitty gritty details of what mm. the the, ma- the problem is. But you would imagine, you know, there is there is a, a, a very sizable price tag attached to to all this. Uh, the original price tag was twelve million when it all started, and then it has obviously jumped to uh, twenty five million euro. It was twenty nine million and was cut back then, paired back uh, to twenty five million. So it's a lot, a lot of money, uh, Michael. Yeah. Mm. And and regardless, it, there, there's going to be a shortfall for Loud. So uh, Loud were really um, mm. in a corner with this once that announcement was made on Saturday because they need the support of Crow Parks. Crow yeah. Park are the governing body. Uh, they head up the association and once they say, well, look, you can't continue, well, Loud had no choice in the matter really at the end of it yeah, all. And I suppose there is a question over whether it can be done cheaper. You talk about putting plans on hold. It could be a question of changing the plans or redesigning uh, the stadium. The current design is for a capacity of 14,000. Uh, do you think uh, Croke Park might suggest that that be scaled back? Well, I think Loud would be very anxious to stick to that uh, plan. You know, that's what they got permission for. It, it includes a, um, a stand, I think, over 4,000 seater stand and a, a terrace Then the other side. Um, I, I don't think they'd be too keen uh, to, I think they'd be very keen to avoid that at all costs. This is what they were. were. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss planning whether further, further cuts can be made I'm, I'm not too sure but that you know they've already shaved 4 million off the, the projected uh, sum worth noting as well uh, just saw a figure over the weekend um, uh, Michael uh, uh, Dalyman Park in, in Dublin the home of Bohemians um, the costing of redeveloping uh, Dalyman Park that has now come in at uh, in the region of 42 million euros so uh, 25 million is mm. pretty eye-watering as far as low the concern 42 million is what they're looking at redeveloping uh, 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 Dalyman Park in Dublin so they're, they're the 
the kind of figures you're talking about. Uh, obviously, costs have really spiralled over the last uh, while, and uh, 25 million. And not, not that not that Loud would be taking any comfort from from it, but um, yeah. you, mm. there, there are projects out there uh, which are coming in much much more expensive. Like 42 mm. million is is, is a pretty sizable uh, sum, and of course, uh, you know we we've we've seen what has gone on with the the National Children's Hospital, and um, you know the, the costs and how things can spiral. But um, you know, I, I think it's just bad seeing now what Crow Park go with this. Uh, you know what they're looking for, how long it's going to take them. Obviously, the All Ireland Finals are coming up, the hurling next week, and the, and the football the 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 week after. So Crow Park officials, I think, would be pretty tied up with getting. Uh, you know, uh, this is the busiest time of the year now, coming to the end of the intercounty season. So just how much of a priority they give Loud in terms of looking at this and reassessing it, we'll just have to wait and see. But obviously, mm. Loud will be trying to put the pressure on and getting this sorted as soon as possible, and then trying to kick on with commencing the whole project. Okay, let me bring you some breaking news, Colin. Uh, I'm not sure if you've heard uh, this announcement yet. Just coming to us literally, Peter Fitzpatrick has resigned as the chair of Loud's GAA. Well, that's uh, news to me. Uh, That is certainly breaking news. Um, I know there was a management committee uh, meeting last night um, and well, this is pretty. This is pretty sensational news, uh, Michael. As is, that's you, you, you've got it quicker than I have. Um, I, I'm not sure the circumstances surrounding that, but it, it obviously comes on foot of that management meeting last night. And uh, well, Peter Fitzpatrick, he has been spearheading uh, mm. this uh, this uh, drive. Uh, he has what he's in his what third or fourth year now as county chairman. When he set out as as chairman, his two priorities were getting uh, load back to the the top of uh, football, and obviously he was uh, uh, very much involved. Involved in, in getting uh, Mickey Hart appointed, he chased Mickey Hart uh, to be appointed as a loud uh, manager after he stepped down as Tyrone, and he was in very quickly. And we've all seen what the football team has done since, and it's been a tremendous success. And of course, his other priority was the new stadium. And he's done Trojan work, obviously, and uh, you know, getting it to this point. Uh, but that really is a, a massive spanner in the works. Again, we don't know the circumstances. Uh, maybe I'm sure something more will come out in due course, and 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 what has led him to uh, to his resignation. But that's pretty sensational news this morning, Michael. Okay, well, I, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm just being told this uh, in my headpiece column. Uh, I'm, I'm sure uh, it'll be verified later in the day. But uh, apparently, Queen Riley is reporting this. Uh, the newsroom have alerted me to it uh, during our conversation but uh, as we understand it uh, reports are that Peter Fitzpatrick has officially resigned Uh, as I say I I take it that needs to be verified but shocking nonetheless Absolutely. Well, we, we'll, we'll verify that in, in uh, due course, but uh, so that's a, a, a massive, a, a, presuming it's, it's, it's a fact, Michael, that's yeah, a massive announcement Ra- this morning. I'm just being handed the tweet, Colin. Quibi and Riley tweeting, Peter Fitzpatrick has resigned as chairman of Louth GAA. And I understand there was a lengthy management meeting in Darver last night with officers walking out at various stages. OK, there's obviously uh, a lot of upset. Yeah, well, look, it's it's a, it's a massive project. There were concerns and there were various opinions expressed at the meeting of the county board this night last week. A lot of uh, questions, genuine questions asked by delegates, you know, worried that at that stage Crow Park hadn't given their financial backing and their support to it. And, uh, you know, it was acknowledged by the top table that the questions that were, were being asked were genuine and uh, naturally enough, you know, with such a massive project and the fact that the cost of it, uh, you know, had obviously spiralled uh, from 12 million to 25 and, and clubs were, were worried 
uh, you know, that Crow Park hadn't rallied in behind it with financial support and there were other concerns expressed as well. And then there, obviously there were other delegates uh, feeling that, you know, if Loud didn't press ahead at this uh, moment in time that it was only going to get more expensive mm. if they left it any longer. So we don't know the ins and outs. Maybe more will uh, yeah. transpire during the course of the day. What exactly happened at that meeting la- uh, last night? And uh, if officers, uh, obviously, if, if they walked out at uh, various stages or whatever. So obviously mm. there were a serious there were serious differences of opinion as to where the whole thing was going. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, whilst I've already put you on the spot, I might as well continue in that vein um, because uh, this news really is just breaking. Peter Fitzpatrick resigned uh, as chair of Louth GAA. Uh, what's your sense, your initial reaction to that column? Um, do you think that plays uh, into the ambition to realise the stage, stadium or against it? I just don't really know, uh, and and who who picks up the baton now? Um, it it means that uh, Lowther without a chairman. Um I, 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 I would have presumed there might have to be a county board meeting called now uh, this week. Um, you know, I, I can't remember. I can't remember the last time we've had a, a resignation. Uh, certainly not in recent times of, of county board uh, chairman. So this is this is massive news. So where Loud go from this? And of course, um, Peter and his committee were uh, very in- instrumental in uh, the IIP scheme. You know, the uh, the immigrant investor program, which obviously forms a massive part in the funding for the uh, stadium. He was instrumental in in in, in getting that. That off the ground and securing uh, money out of that as well. So I'm not just sure, sure where this goes. Um, uh, you know, I think uh, people at the moment, uh, clubs and county board delegates and club delegates, will be just absorbing this news here at the moment. Um, but it's a massive one in terms of uh, the stadium and where it goes from here. But uh, as I say, uh, we'll, we'll verify that. It looks have been verified at the moment, perhaps on on, on social media. That's the word coming through on social media. Uh, but I, I think this is a, a developing and an evolving story, uh, uh, Michael. Okay, Colin, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, LMFM sports editor Colin Corrigan. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's talk about uh, the closure of uh, the Obelisk Bridge. It'll be closed, it seems, for at least uh, 10 months uh, and uh, obviously uh, with good reason um, uh, issue of repair and maintenance uh, and it'll be a big job, no doubt. Uh, but there will be significant impacts on traffic in Drogheda as a result of all of this. We've already had quite a, a number of comments. Uh, there's a common theme in a, a few comments that came to us, like the one from Sean and Monaster Boyce who says the simple solution to solving the traffic problems with the impending closure of the bridge is to remove the toll barriers. After all, they're not manned so nobody would be out of work. A WhatsApp message uh, then from somebody uh, who says if the tolls are free for the 10 months it'll resolve the issue of the bridge being closed. Please put that to the TDs on your show. Uh, Pat and Tully Allen, same thoughts. If the tolls are free for 10 months it'll resolve Uh, the issues. Thank you as well uh, for that. Uh, I don't think I need to put it uh, to the TDs. Labour's Jed Nash, Sinn Féin's Mel de Munster, Fine Gael's Fergus O'Dowd, all of whom are on the line and all of whom put exactly that point to the Minister for Transport uh, at some stage. That's Eamon Ryan. The Minister said that this really doesn't have anything to do with him as Minister. He's responsibility for roads policy, that it is uh, the responsibility of Transport Infrastructure Ireland and the local authority, Louth County Council. Uh, But he also said that it's uh, TII who have the statutory powers to levy tolls, to make toll bylaws and to enter into toll agreements with private uh, investors that are invested in TII under Part 5 of the Roads Act 1993. So we wrote to TII 
They referred us to Louth County Council. Louth County Council have told us that appropriate traffic diversions will be put in place for the duration of the closure. So it's just going to be traffic that will be diverted. There won't be any change to the toll or any alternative put in place, it would seem, from the statement that has come to us from Louth County Council. So this bridge closes in two weeks. Let's uh, hear the thoughts of uh, the local representatives. Fergus O'Dowd, can I start with you? Because as I say, everybody has said, why not drop the toll uh, for the time that the work is under where you were also suggesting a dolly bridge at one stage. What's that? Well, it's meant to be just a bridge that would be a part of the actual physical structure, but you could you could pedestrianise, you could walk across, or you could bring a bicycle or, or whatever with you. But I spoke to the county council about that on Friday, and they're telling me that there's not an engineering solution that they could stand over. Well, what they said to me, Michael, was that the bridge, they have to take the concrete uh, base off and they don't know what it's going to be like underneath but believe it could be quite 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 severely stressed with 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 erosion of of the metal the iron structure mm. and uh, there is evidence um from one of i think it's from one of the community groups out there that it's the actual by navigation are saying the large piece of concrete falling from the underside of the bridge exposing steel badly rusted so th- there are serious issues with it. So he said they wouldn't be able to do anything at all. That's what he said to me with the physical structure in terms of putting a, uh, you know, a, a bridge mm. parallel to it or part or ha- joined onto that structure. Mm. Uh, so, so Is there anything else that can be done? Uh, I mean, obviously the bridge runs over yep. the river. Uh, is there anything else that can be done apart from the tolls? Well, I mean, that's that, that's what I put to him. Mm. He's he, he, a very stark choice. He says, either we repair it or we don't. If we don't repair it and yeah. it is dangerous, it's closed forever, right? Yeah. That's one choice. And the other choice is the 10 months. Now, he did point out to me that the 10 months is the longest time they expect it to be mm. and that the contractor could very easily finish more quickly than that. I asked him where the incentives in the contract to the contractor to finish earlier and he told me there wasn't as such but that clearly the work has been itemised I think it's worth one million or whatever mm-hmm. the figure is and if it finishes early oh, and I'm sure it's very important work uh, and necessary work uh, and it, certainly it, sounds it's based on what you've uh, just said Jed Nash what do you think closing that bridge closing the road effectively for 10 months is going to result uh, in in terms of uh, Drogheda's traffic uh, the traffic situation as we all know is horrendous Michael as it stands and this is going to be supercharged if um, residents especially around Tully Allen and that general area are really dreading um, the impact that this is going to have on them and we all know what's going to happen uh, Trinity Street uh, Georgia Street North Road is going to become even more congested and, and quite frankly I mean, the Minister for Transport can't absolve himself of all responsibility in this. Uh, I raised this matter with him in the doll recently, as others did, and he made it very clear that as far as he was concerned, he had no function in relation to the lifting of the toll. Uh, I would reject that entirely. Uh, just a few short months ago, in the middle of a cost of living crisis, um, an inflation, um, uh, as a consequence of inflation, uh, an increase was due to be imposed on, on most tolls around the country, including our, our two local tolls. And the Minister managed to magic €12.5 million Euros up to subvent 
the uh, toll companies, including CRG, that operates the toll onto the North Road uh, and on the M1 motorway, to compensate them for the loss in terms of the um, postponement of that increase. And we know that increases in place since the 1st of July. So the Minister could very, very clearly, if um, if the political will is there, um, introduce a situation where the toll could be lifted for a period of time. I remember questioning Shane Ross. Remember him, the former Minister for Transport, uh, a few short years ago, that what it would cost to actually buy out the contract onto the North Road toll. And he told me in 2017 it would cost about €7 million. Euros. So imagine the small amount of money uh, that it would cost uh, the state to actually take that toll away for the duration of this work. I've asked for costings from the Minister and TII and hope to get them uh, in the middle uh, of Mm. Uh, this week or, or late this week to establish what it would cost. So that's the cause. Very small, for, for a very small cost to the state, we could actually address this problem because it's going to be absolutely horrific. And what I propose as well yeah. to the council to try and mitigate this, Michael, is to look at the possibility of taking away maybe nine or ten car parking spaces from the uh, left-hand side of Trinity Street as you're approaching the Bridge of Peace to allow for a left-turning lane uh, onto Georgia Street because one of the problems that we experience in Mel and, and Trinity Street, especially at evening times uh, during rush hour, is the backing up of traffic right uh, back in some cases to the garage or even the entrance there to, to Ashfield. So Every day of the Ashfield, week, yeah. Mm. Well, every day of the week. Yeah. So if a left-turning lane was introduced there, and actually this was a proposal that came from some staff in St. Oliver's School who have a lot of um, staff who would be travelling um, using the Obelisk Bridge, coming from uh, maybe the Tully Alamonster Voice area mm. or coming from uh, elsewhere in Louth and, and, and parts of Meath to, to work. Mm. Uh, that proposal actually came from them. It's a proposal I forwarded to um, Louth County Council. Mm. Uh, but ultimately, I think, Michael, that the Minister can't absolve himself of responsibility for okay. I'd like to see, yeah. like, like Fergus said, a, a, a Dolly Bridge. We know that, uh, and I spoke to uh, officials in the Committee Council this previously, there isn't an engineering solution to that. But as part of the long-term, I think, solution in terms of transport needs in this area, and if we're to, mo- to promote this area for you know, cycling and mm. walking, uh, as the Boyne Camino Group, for example, are doing, then we should introduce a pedestrian alternative. Well, it might be quicker to walk, uh, anyway, <laughs> the way things are. Uh, because, uh, as you say, if you close... The bridge, if you close the road, uh, you're going to have traffic problems on Trinity Street and Georgia Street. But if you have traffic problems there, you're going to see it uh, domino on into every other part of the town. Let me bring Imelda Munster in here, uh, because the Minister said, nothing to do with me, go to TII. TII have said, speak to Louth County Council, so I take it that they've no interest in negotiating uh, some deal on the toll, or that it would be scrapped for the time of uh, the works. This is going to be chaotic, isn't isn't it? Is there a time to even come up with the solution to this as things stand? Yeah, I agree with you, Mike. It is going to be chaotic. You're going to have motorists coming in from Slane, Collins, Tully Allen, and what it's going to do is going to send everyone in the, the one direction. So, so it's going to clog up an already overly congested road network. It's going to add at least, at the very least, 20 minutes to people's journey each way. You're going to have people coming off at the M1 roundabout Rose Hall roundabout, you're going to have further delays, Mel, North Road, Trinity Street, and even the junction at the Rathmullen Road and the bridge, you're going to have traffic backed up there because people going that would normally use the obelisk to go to St. Oliver's School and Marley's Lane School, you're going to have them coming down into that junction morning and, and afternoons, or people working the other side of town that use the bridge, uh, people going to access the Drogheda retail park. It's it's going it's literally going to be chaotic. It's going to it, as if we're not bad enough as it is. But 
I think um, the the minister I got pretty much the same response as as you read out there earlier. Um, I've also written to TII. <clears throat> we see what they do, but I wonder is there something that they could consider um, a pass based on air code. Uh, given to people in the affected area to use the slip road toll for the duration. Yeah. Um, now, it says it's 10 months, but you're, do you remember Dominic's Bridge walks? That mm. went on forever. Yeah. So, you know... And but would that in itself be enough? To, I mean, it would help, but would it be enough? Because, well, it, I mean, the yeah. amount of traffic uh, that yeah, uses yeah. that bridge, uh, yeah. you wouldn't think it, but it really is colossal. Yeah, they're going to have to consider something because Drogheda is congested enough as it is. I mean, it takes you... You know, peak hours, nearly 30 minutes to get from one side of town to the other, depending on the traffic. And the traffic light sequencing in this town is such a disaster. It just mm. adds to the problem constantly. But um, And when you get onto them, they change it for a week or two, and then the revert seems to revert back then. But something like a pass based on the air code for the people affected mm. um, to use that slip road would help to alleviate it. I'm not saying it would solve mm. it. Mm. But again, I mean, I know what you're up against when you're dealing with TII and either former Minister for Transport or the current one when you talk about lifting uh, tolls. So just, there's a private investor, you know, mm. TII, and they're not going to, to yield, but they're going to have to do something on that. And the other thing I'm curious about, like Loud County Council had said appropriate traffic diversions will be put in place. What does that actually mean? I mean, where are they going to put those diversions in when the bridge is closed? Where is it? Diversion's going to go. Mm. It's a, and it, it I don't know. I'm, right. now, I'm still waiting on a response. Yeah. But it seems to me it's that... It's not possible, is it? I mean, you're going to end possible. up with the Rose Hall no. roundabout uh, if you're coming that direction. And that's that's it. I mean, at that stage then, you're in the traffic and it's not going to be moving any quicker than a, a snail. Because, uh, yeah, O'Dowd, but did they not? Yeah, yeah sorry. sorry. Sorry, go ahead, Melody. No, I was going to say, like the local, loud local authorities, when they got this funding... Yeah. Straight away you think, right, holy God, it's just going to be, this is going to be total madness. Mm. Well, it, it, it seems inevitable. Yeah. Yeah. You know, to argue for the, the even that air code pass, were they, you know, what yeah. did they do to alleviate it mm. other than, say, appropriate traffic diversions? Just, what mm. does that even mean? Okay. Well, what do you think, Fergus O'Dowd? I mean, are, are, are you disappointed with the council, with TAI, with the minister? As things stand, it looks as though it's just going to be closed and good luck to you. Well, I think, I think that's obviously what's going to happen. It has to be closed because it's dangerous. Yeah. And there seems to be no alternative engineering solution that you could put inside. No, I'm not an engineer, but I think we should challenge that a bit more. Part of the problem is that the responsibility for the actual work and the repair rests with the local authority. And it's uh, between me and Loud County Council, and Loud County Council are actually doing it on behalf of both authorities. Mm. Uh, the, the other point is, uh, you know, I accept absolutely, and I know when I objected initially to the tolls, uh, and I think at the time, I know Imelda and, and Jamie not been the doll at that time, but one of the points I put was that Loud registration and mead registration should be free you know, at, at those points. In other words, it would allow you to cross and and use the, the, the ramps uh, if they would allow that to happen because that does happen in parts of France. 
in terms of tolls there, but that, that didn't find mm. favour. Are, are you disappointed, though, that but, there's nothing being done to make that happen now for the period of the works? It, it seems as well, though I, it's I not even on the agenda. That is. I, 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 think, I think, first of all, when we heard about this first, like I was inundated with queries on it, like the other my other colleagues I put down, mm. PQs on it. But I'm more than happy to, you know, to, to get on to the minister again and to TII. What the, the overall view that TII take is that, and this is not for the period of a year or ten months, is that is that the 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 M1 the the PPP that they have a level of outstanding debt of 65 million, and that you know obviously how much of that would be part of this deal and what they're saying actually it's it's quite complicated. Uh, so look, to put it differently, I'm happy to to work with my mm. colleagues uh, to go to TII and to Loud County Council. Now I've been on to Loud County Council. I've been on to the minister, yeah. and if there's any if there's any way it can be done, I would certainly be for, you know be certainly supporting that. Yeah, well, I, I would imagine that the minister would be able to make something like that happen um, if the, uh, the will, will was there. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, but, uh, I mean, if the will isn't there, where does it leave us? Amelda uh, uh, Munster, I, I mean, people are just going to be stressed out of their heads once the closure comes in. I mean, people are probably saying to themselves, God, I don't think that's going to be good. But when it happens, I think people are going to be irate. Yeah, you're going to have school times, you know, the peak yeah. hours. It's going to be all through the depths of the winter as well, right up until May of next year. Um, yeah, stress levels are going to be through the roof. But I think the minister, I mean, just sometimes it frustrates you, the bog standard answer you get um, from officials. I mean, he could he could firstly plead the case to TII. He could say to look at this, you know, Drogheda is the largest town in Ireland. Traffic congestion is a huge problem. We're not talking about a four-week closure of mm. a bridge. We're looking at a 10-month period where, you know, residents in that Mm. hinderland if you like are going to add further congestions going to put extra time in their journeys if you're talking about you know environmental and all of that sort of thing um, to if he was to put pressure on them to lift you know something like the, the pass based on the air code um, he could do a hell of a lot more than he's doing other than just do a standard bog standard response doesn't seem to be any um, political will there to try and help us sorted out whatsoever. Well, I think the minister could say how much. I think that's probably all that it comes down to, isn't it? Uh, As complicated as it it might be, uh, it's relatively simple. Uh, It's a matter of compensating the toll operator. And if you do that, I'm sure the toll operator wouldn't have too much problem with it uh, because that's their business is to make money off the toll. Uh, But Drogheda is undoubtedly going to come to a standstill. Of course it is, yeah. without a shadow of a doubt. It's yeah. bad enough. I mean, I live off the North Road, and even on a Saturday, mm. the traffic is backed up. Now, that's to do with the, the light, traffic light sequence mm. in whatever way, whether it's to shove people out, force people to, to use the tolls, which it has to be because there's no other logic to it because it actually clogs up the town, the traffic mm. light sequence. Yeah. But this is just going to be madness altogether. Yeah. Mm. You know, and you say about TII... Um, that's the problem mm. when there's private investors yeah. brought in, that it's all about money, mm. you know, and everything else is secondary to that. Mm. But I still think the minister could help us put up a fight. And I think loud local authorities should get on to TII also. Mm. 
And just to check that we're all on the same page, uh, Fergus O'Dowd, uh, there's no doubt in your mind that this is just going to cause chaos. Oh, there's no doubt about it at all. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely no doubt about it. And it's it's compounded by the fact, you know, that there's so many new housing Mm. developments in the north of town and the south of town and obviously everywhere. Like the, 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 The problem is we don't have a proper public transport infrastructure, an adequate one. To give people alternatives, and obviously the the traffic in Julianstown that's gone. I think it's twenty. Mm. When they built the bypass, it was twenty four thousand vehicles a day. At this stage, the number of vehicles is close to twenty two, and that's going mm. to grow. So there's huge pressure on the whole area because we don't have an adequate or an appropriate. Okay, well, that's the real issue. Two weeks tomorrow, uh, a new reality will kick in. We leave it there for the moment, though, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us ahead of uh, the closure of uh, the Obelisk Bridge in Drogheda on the 1st of August. Uh, we were speaking with Fergus O'Dowd, Finnegal TD for Louth and East Meath, Sinn Fein TD, uh, Amalda Munster, and also with uh, the Labour Party's Jed Nash. Michael Reed on LMFM. Farm Safety Week gets underway today and it's a message that can never be said too often. Let's uh, speak to John Carl Louth, County Chairman for the Irish Farmers Association. A very good morning to you, John, and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. And I suppose, really, a week like this isn't going to tell anybody anything that they haven't heard before, but it gives us the opportunity to focus on what is important and to ask people to think about their safety when they're working on the farm. Yes, good morning, Michael, and thanks for having me on your show this morning. Um, yes, this is Farm Safety Week, and look, we we try and do everything as safe as we can and as best we can. A lot of farmers are working alone um, and work I work well with livestock and machinery. Um, so, um, yes, Farm Safety Week is, is priority for everybody. Make sure everybody is um, um, kept safe. Mm. And I suppose the big one at the moment is uh, just shifting a combine here at the moment on the road. And uh, I'm just directing traffic here. Mm. Um, so, um, yeah, it's everything. is. You're, everything you're multitasking there, all right. I can hear your cattle behind you as well. <laughs> Very good. No, I'm shifting, actually shifting the combine, and um, we hope to go to go go harvesting. I went to Varley later on in the week. Yeah. If if the weather conducts itself, because the the weather um, this last for July has been very very wet. Um, sure has. So yeah. it, it, it's um, it's, a, it's a challenge, and a bigger challenge this year now with the, with ground being softer and crop going to the ground. So it's a different challenge. So yeah, look at we well, have to look at safety safety there too with well, that's it. in the field uh, and, is, and that one of, is that one of the problems though, like that you get an opportunity, like make hay when the sun shines and all of that, because the sun doesn't shine too often. So when you get the chance, <laughs> uh, you do it without You do have to make hay while the sun shines, yeah. Michael. You do have to but you do have to but, but does that lead to compromising uh, your safety because you're in a rush to get it done because you don't get so many opportunities? You're in a rush. You're in a rush. To, you're in a rush to hold down. Machine, the machine coming there. There's a machine coming there. Just one second. Okay. And <laughs> um, so um, it's um, look at this. Yeah, you, you have to, you have to look after everything the whole time, um, and watch everybody. Watch the road. Watch traffic. Watch right. the scenery. Watch guys you're working with you. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge. Um, was, and, was that a motorist you were stopping there? 
Sorry, Michael? Was, it, was that a motorist you were stopping there asking to be uh, <laughs> careful? <laughs> um, well, anyhow, um, look at our Farm Safety mm. Week. It's about everybody, bringing everybody and keeping everybody safe. Yeah. Um, and um, making sure everybody gets... That's where, the, where, where you'd like to be. You'd like to see people planning, planning their, their, their day and planning their, their work, looking at, making sure everything goes. Yeah. What, 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 do you, what do you think of uh, the government paying for helmets for quad bikes? Uh, I was talking to the minister not so long a, a, ago about it and asking Martin Hayden, why is it if somebody goes out and spends 10 or 15,000 euro or whatever it is on a, a quad bike that they won't go out and buy themselves a helmet? And the helmet's probably 20 euro. Yeah. It's the cheapest part of the whole thing. Mm. Yeah, and the same was I do a bit of cycling myself with the Dunleo uh, Cycling Club. And um, no helmet, you don't go out. Simple mm. as. So um, I was talking to a sheep farmer yesterday in County Mead. I met him on the road and I was out cycling. And he was shifting sheep. And um, I didn't discuss with him um, his helmet. Um, but um, he wasn't going too far. But helmets on, on quad bikes people tend to oh I guess I'll have one if I'm going down the road but I won't bother putting it on me if I'm only going up across the paddocks and maybe it's it's an attitude people need to take on board people with a quad bike you can slip at 3 or 4 kilometers an hour mm. off a quad bike you can, I, they do look safe they look wide they yeah. look big bulky and all the rest but if you tumble off that the first thing that's going to hit the ground is your head and it, sh- it should be part of the bike that if you're going off on a quad bike, yeah. wear a helmet. But if uh, you can get a grant to buy the helmet, uh, it's a poor reflection it's, on... Oh, that you don't need a grant. Well, yeah. so you don't need a grant to buy a helmet. No, I know. Well, after buying your... Uh, after spending thousands... It's a lifesaver. Yeah, but, but, but it, isn't it a poor reflection on people's attitude towards safety that the government is saying, look, we'll buy you the helmets <laughs> if you won't buy yeah, them look, yourself. We'll buy you the helmets. Yeah, you're lucky. Yeah. And you, you, if you've seen someone, you need to buy them a helmet. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the smallest part of the whole thing. Mm. They, need, they need to be, they need to look at us. Um, yeah, yeah. and, and you'll have to do driving lessons uh, as such, um, a, a training course. Um, mm. It's probably, if, 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 if somebody else said it to you, Look, you need to wear a helmet whenever you're on that quad bike, mm. and up and down the pass, and up and down the road, whatever you're doing with a quad bike, you should wear a helmet. It would save your life. You know what? Trying to frighten people into it. You don't probably need to do a course, but you need to tell people this is where you, you, you'd like to see them um, going forward and um, have, have a helmet. Okay. Well, I think a, a course, a, a course is going to be required, and a helmet will be required, whether you buy it yourself mm. uh, or get the government to yeah. buy it for you. Uh, but uh, that—that's because it's very, very dangerous, and the whole idea very, of this very is dangerous. to. But you look at the other yeah. things. You take the yeah. take Ella's story, um, that lassie from County Longford mm. that yeah. climbed on the red bars, and then she shows walking out, going through a, a cattle shed, and she got the smell of gas, and she collapsed. Mm. Um, and she made a phone call. Only for her um, phone, yeah. Only for her phone. Like, mm. I'm with Farm Safety Week this week in Loud. Um, I intend to um, have a little competition and give out earpieces because whenever you're on the phone or whenever a f- the phone rings in the cab of the tractor or the Jeep or whatever, yeah. you're, you're looking for this phone. But if you have an earpiece in your ear, mm. 
in your ear, you can answer the phone, everything is a lot, lot safer. Okay. It mm. means that things are a lot safer. Mm. You can, and probably one of the safest things about her, if you run into trouble and you can double click on the button on your earpiece, mm. it rings back the person you were last talking to, oh, right. whoever that okay. may be. Mm. Mm. Um, so like, look at, look you're, at. You're going to have a competition giveaway a few of them. Yes, and then maybe some people will think that's a good idea, and they'll go out and buy them themselves if they don't win. The Absolutely, look at the yeah. are, the are yeah. fantastic, yeah. and the mobile phone's a fantastic yeah. piece of equipment used yeah. safely, and the earpiece add to that. Um, you're yeah. on a quad bike; you don't have to have take a hand off. You can yeah. press the button in the rear. Yeah. That's a, a bit a bit like driving a car, John. I, I think, uh, as I said at the beginning of uh, our conversation, most people know what to do to keep themselves safe. Uh, it's a matter of thinking safety uh, and being focused yeah, on it yeah, uh, and looking safety. after yourself. Yeah. Yes, yeah, think safety, uh, safely the whole time. That's your best challenge. Look, behaviour and plan your day. Think it safely as best you can. I know the simple things can happen, that, and they do. But if at least if you can try and look after yourself as best you can, um, because life is precious, and look after everybody and look after look after yourself. Okay, John. Thanks for taking the call. Arm as safely as you can. No problem, Michael. Much appreciated. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, John Carroll is uh, the chair of the Irish Farmers Association in County Louth. Michael Reed on LMFM. Here's a a very interesting, worrying statistic. 60% of people who contact Pieta House are deemed to be of high risk. It's a very high figure, 60% at high risk. That's out of 99,000 calls and texts uh, that were received uh, by Pieta House uh, last year. This is according to the organisation's annual report, which was published last week. So, uh, in other words, 60,000 calls and texts uh, relating uh, to people who are deemed to be high risk really is uh, quite... Uh, incredible. Stephanie Manahan is uh, the CEO of Pieta, uh, which is Ireland's national suicide prevention charity. And a, a very good morning to you, Stephanie, and thank you indeed for joining us. Prevention is obviously not possible. Uh, indeed, uh, you've worked with 670 households uh, who have uh, been using your suicide bereavement uh, service. Uh, that in itself tells its own story, doesn't it? Yes, good morning, Michael, and thank you very much for having me um, on your show this morning. Really appreciate it. Um, it does indeed, and um, we we would do significant um, bereavement work, and we do in-person counselling with bereavement work. But we also do, as you've just mentioned there, our um, bereavement liaison service, and that's our qualified counsellors who are out in the community and responding in person um, very early on as part of that early response team following, sadly, a death from suicide. Um, we know that the research tells us that one death from suicide can impact over 125 people. And, um, and, and, and that is a significant impact, sadly. So people who have been through or have experienced a death from suicide need significant support and um and, and we're here for them mm. and we're we do an awful lot of work in that space. Um and certainly I was looking at the preliminary figures for twenty twenty one um suggesting that there's close to three hundred and ninety nine deaths that may have been um categorized as, as being from a death from suicide. 
And that equates to nearly 50,000 people impacted by that and 50,000 people who need support and who need um, help mm. during that period following that death. Um, I imagine I imagine most people uh, have some experience, uh, direct or indirect experience, but some experience uh, of they, somebody dying they, by they, suicide. Yeah, yeah, they do indeed. And, yeah. and, and even, you know, looking at the figures there um, locally um, from from our perspective, we, we've supported quite a number of people in the Loudmead region um, mm. and um, over this past year, um, providing over 3,000 hours of um, counselling support to people from Loudmead. We've supported over 60 households in the uh, across the counties through our liaison service. Um, but in a in a in a very positive sort of light, we've also um, engaged with over 35 um, local schools and clubs with our Amber Flag Initiative, which is building resilience with young people, which is a program around mental health, mental awareness and positive attitudes to um, mental health and building resilience for our mm. young people in particular. So that's really mm. going um, very positively. And you have an awful lot of uh, services available to people. They're all uh, there to see on your website, pieta.ie. And we'll give uh, the free phone crisis helpline number and uh, other ways of getting in touch with you in a moment if people are feeling uh, suicidal or have thought of self-harming or if they've been bereaved um, because of suicide for that matter in just a a couple of minutes, Stephanie. But how long has uh, Pieta House been in operation? Uh, I'm just wondering, really, the reason I'm asking you that is what did uh, the people who contacted you 99,000 times in the course of the last Mm. year do before Pieta House existed? Well, I think that was the very reason that Pieta um, came about. Um, since Pieta was set up in um, in and around 2006, it has now um, supported over 70,000 people. And, and that's 70,000 people. The only reason we've been able to do what we do every single day is because of the fundraising efforts of the incredible volunteers and supporters um, living on this island. And um, we've got some incredible, fantastic supporters in Mead, many of whom I've met, who organise the wonderful Darkness into Light walks, but also people who do bake sales, people who do incredible challenges and runs and lots of other things. Mm. So for, for us, um, we really are um, part of the community. We are. We exist because the community supports us and continue to support us. Um, and um, what I would say, if there's any sort of barbershops or any um, clubs or any societies out there who'd like to collaborate with us on our um, Signs of Suicide Awareness campaign and our Go Amber campaign, which will be coming up in September and October, that's around the World Prevention Day for Suicide and mm. the World Mental Health Day. Um, and, and it is about raising awareness because we know particularly, and um, you mentioned it earlier, that young mm. men are just not reaching out in the same numbers. They're still reluctant to talk. So if there are, you know, clubs or um, any groups or, as I said, barbershops where... Yeah, I was, wondering, I was going to ask you why you said... Bar- I, I was yeah. going to ask you why you said barbershops. <laughs> there must be a reason, but that's where you'll find young men, OK? Exactly, and you're reaching yeah. out to and young men, yeah. Women, women are renowned to going into the hairdresser and spilling out their souls and talking and talking and talking. Yeah. 
And whilst young men are, are less likely to, even if there was an awareness yeah. in those places where, you know, there is the odd, well, how are you doing? And, mm. and, and even having something up on a wall um, can trigger a conversation. And sometimes that's all it needs. And, okay. you know, um, to ask somebody how they're doing, um, that no ever no harm ever came from that. And mm. we are really keen that people reach out. And one of the other pieces around the the our 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 line that um you mentioned the, the mm. ninety nine thousand calls and texts. Yeah. Um, that is run by qualified therapists. Mm. So so when you ring that line, you're getting through to someone who knows what they're talking about. You're getting through to somebody who is going to meet you with absolute care and compassion, no judgment. And also good, solid knowledge. And they will also talk to you, even if you're just worried about somebody. You don't have to be experiencing yeah. suicidal self-harm or, um, or, or ideation. If you're worried about a loved one, if you're worried about a friend, a yeah. daughter, a mother, an aunt, an uncle, a neighbour, whatever it is, you can call that line and they'll give you some good advice and good tips on how to open up that conversation or maybe mm. how to encourage the person. It's a brilliant service. There's no doubt yeah. about it. Uh, and uh, I was going to ask you another question that I think you've yeah. already preempted because I wanted to know about the barber shops. But as you say, that's where you <laughs> find young men. Hopefully all the yeah. barbers listening to us uh, will put a, a sign up and men shed sports clubs and so Absolutely. on. But I, I was just about to ask you yeah. if you could explain why the majority of people who do contact you are female, 63% of the people who contacted you. But is it for the reason that you've just explained to us uh, that men don't reach out for help? I, I think still in our community, sadly, women are more prone to talking and more prone to, they're more likely, should I say, to um, seek help earlier. Um, and, um, and, and, and I don't know, is it culturally, is it a gender issue? But certainly women do seek help sooner and quicker than men do. Um, and and um, what we did see last year, and it, it, it is, it is um, not so much about the gender, but it's about the age range. We saw that in 2020, our average age on the under 18 bracket, our average age was 16. Right. In 2021, our average age went down to 15. Mm. And in 2022, it dropped to, just last year, it dropped to 14. Right. Now, there's something very positive about that. Okay. Because that means that people are seeking help earlier. Mm. Better awareness. So I think yeah. societally, mm. perhaps we are doing a good job, but mm. we can't deny that COVID had a significant impact on our young mm. people. Okay. It, it impacted everyone. Stephanie, my time is just up, so I'll just remind people your website is pieta.ie the free phone crisis helpline with qualified counsellors uh, that you can speak uh, about uh, things with is 1-800-247-247 or text Help to 5144. All that information available from the radio station or on pieta.ie. Stephanie Manahan is the CEO of Pieta, Ireland's National Suicide Prevention Charity. And that's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. 
Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.